Welcome to the First Baptist Church Keller Sermon Podcast. Each week we make available sermons from Pastor Keith and our staff on our website, fbckeller.org. And on iTunes, search for First Baptist Church Keller TX in the iTunes Store or in the podcast app on your mobile device. And now here's our pastor, Keith Sanders. Luke 18, 24 through 30, our text this morning. The title of the message is Pitying the Wealthy. We're returning to the story of the rich young ruler. The pastor bit off a little bit more than he could chew with the text last week. It only made it halfway through the story. But the Lord is gracious and gave us another Sunday. You recall that all three of the synoptic gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, record the story of a person described as a ruler. That is, he had administrative authority over some entity, likely the synagogue. He's also described as extremely wealthy by Luke and the other two writers. He wanted to know what he could do to inherit eternal life. And therein lies the irony, doesn't it? An inheritance is by definition a bequest, a gift. If you earn it, it's no longer a gift. We said that this young man was obviously a high achiever. He was accustomed to earning the first grade, the highest title, and the most money. He simply was trying to apply his success in the material world to the spiritual world. He even had in his hand a stellar resume. He had not committed adultery. He had not murdered anyone. He honored his parents. He just wanted the Lord Jesus to give him one more task to do to assure that he would make it to heaven. But what Jesus said to the man initially must have stunned him. One thing you still lack, Jesus said, go sell all you have and give the proceeds to the poor and then come follow me. Well, the rich young ruler might have been initially stunned, but that emotion quickly turned to grief. The scripture says he went away sorrowful because he had much. Well, this morning we want to look at our Lord's response to this man's rejection of the command to leave everything to follow him. Let's look at Luke 18, beginning in verse 24. And Jesus looked at him and said, how hard it is for those who are wealthy to enter the kingdom of God. For it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of the needle than a rich man to enter the kingdom of God. Those who heard it said, then who can be saved? But he said, the things that are impossible with people are possible with God. Peter said, behold, we have left our own homes and followed you. And he said to them, truly, I say to you, there is no one who has left house or wife or brother or parents or children for the sake of the kingdom of God, who will not receive many times as much as this time in the age to come eternal life. May the Lord add his blessing, the reading and hearing of his word. As I said, the title of the message this morning is Pitying the Wealthy. You might have thought you misheard that because it sounds like a mistake. Because we Christians have been conditioned all of our lives to pity the poor. But when Jesus looked at this man who seemingly had everything our society values, youth, money, influence, and power, Mark records this about Jesus, that Jesus felt a love for him. Really, that could be translated compassion, but I think in its essence, it's pity. Because Jesus knew that this young man's heart was his money. His possessions were controlling him. You see, this man missed heaven, not because he had possessions, but because his possessions had him. And so, why then should we pity the wealthy? Well, the scriptures say this young man went away sorrowful. In fact, the word is stronger than that. He went away grieving. We tend to have sympathy for those who are brokenhearted. 
But unfortunately, this young man didn't have godly sorrow. The Bible distinguishes between earthly sorrow and godly sorrow in 2 Corinthians chapter 7. Remember the Apostle Paul has written this second epistle to the church at Corinth. They were guilty of a number of different sorts of sins. And he had written to rebuke them, but he had heard that they had repented, at least some of them. And so he says, I now rejoice not that you were made sorrowful. Paul says, I didn't take any joy from rebuking you, but that you were made sorrowful to the point of repentance. For you were made sorrowful according to the will of God, so that you might not suffer loss in anything through us. For the sorrow that is according to the will of God produces a repentance without regret leading to salvation. But the sorrow of the world produces death. This man was full of sorrow, but it was the wrong kind of sorrow. It's the sorrow that the world produces, the kind that leads to regret. And he did regret that he could not follow Jesus or he would not because he wasn't willing to part with his wealth. So there's three reasons I want to share with you this morning why we should pity the wealthy. The first is this, because of the difficulty of spirituality and riches. The difficulty of spirituality and riches. Verse 24, and Jesus looked at him and said, how hard it is for those who are wealthy to enter the kingdom of God. Now Christ is saying here that from a human perspective, money can be a handicap when it comes to discerning spiritual truth. We human beings are unique in God's creation in that we have a temporary body and an eternal soul. When we die, as we surely will, our soul will spend eternity either in heaven or hell. This rich young ruler apparently knew this, but his love for money was more than his love for God and his love for his neighbor, the two commandments that Jesus said all the others hung upon. And his money became an obstacle, a barrier keeping him from eternal life. Now, I've often said from this pulpit that money is morally neutral. It's neither good nor bad. It can be used for great good or great evil. But I want to balance that true statement by saying that there is little to nothing said by Jesus in the New Testament about the goodness of money. In fact, the New Testament is full of warnings about the love of money. And I'll, I'll put the warnings about the love of money into three categories. They're easy to remember. They all begin with the letter D. First of all, riches are distracting, distracting. Jesus taught that a person cannot love God and money. The story of the rich young ruler is the classic illustration of that timeless truth. Riches keep a person, in other words, preoccupied with this life. Remember, we have a physical body and we have an eternal soul. And, and a great theme of the New Testament is that we ought to give much more attention to the eternal than the temporary. But when we are preoccupied in this life with money, really we are in, in three ways. Number one, many people, whether they have money or not, are preoccupied with how to acquire it. How can I get rich? But once they've acquired money, then they spend an inordinate amount of time figuring out how to manage it. How can I make it grow? How can I make it work for me? But, but once they've built a large nest egg, then they worry about how can I keep it? They want to make sure they don't outlive their money. But, but really, let's be honest. It's a more serious problem than riches are distracting. The second truth is that riches are more than distracting. Riches are dangerous to the soul of men. First Timothy 6, 9, Paul writes to the young pastor and says, but those who want to get rich fall into temptation and a snare and many foolish and harmful desires which plunge men into ruin and destruction. 
For the love of money is a root of all sorts of evil, and some by longing for it have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves with many griefs. It's more than distracting, it's, it's outright dangerous to your soul. And thirdly, the clearest description of riches in the Bible is that they are deceitful. Most of you know the story of the soils. And Jesus talked about a farmer, sower, who went out to sow and he's got a bag full of seed. And he just scatters it, broadcasts it everywhere and wherever it fell, that's where it fell. He said some fell upon the path and it was trampled underfoot of men and produced no fruit. And some of course fell upon stony ground and it, when it took root it couldn't go any farther and the sun came out and it died. And others fell upon good soil and that's the product that came up and had many fold, 10, 20, 50 fold of fruit. But then there's a fourth kind of soil and it's the soil we're talking about today. And he says, that's uh, the thorny soil. Verse 18, Mark four, and others are the ones of whom seed was sown among the thorns. These are the ones who have heard the word, but the worries of the world, and hear this, the deceitfulness of riches and the desire for other things enter in and choke the word and it becomes unfruitful. In what way? are riches deceitful? Well, I can name three at least. One is that they make promises they cannot keep. For example, people who have a lot of money think that uh, they'll certainly have long life. I can buy the best medical care, they think. I, I can eat the most nutritious food. I'll even hire a personal trainer to get me in shape. And I'll certainly live to be 100 years old and that doesn't always happen. Second lie they believe is that money will buy them happiness. And we know from personal experience of people we know and famous people in our culture, that certainly is not the case. But the Bible teaches that's not the case in many places, but specifically the man Solomon, who not only was the wisest man that ever lived, was granted great wealth by God. And when he came to the end of his life, he looked at his heaped treasure and pronounced it vanity. Vanity of vanity, all his vanities, he said. He wasn't happy. But the third lie it tells is that of it promises security. Many people who are wealthy believe that they don't need God. They're secure in their wealth. In fact, even Christians can grow to believe this. And in fact, the book of Revelation warns a church who believed that they had grown wealthy. They were rich in goods and in need of nothing. Jesus rebuked them. Probably the most famous passage in the Bible about this is the parable of the rich fool who was a farmer and he had a bumper crop. He brought in the bumper crop at harvest time and his barns couldn't hold the abundance. And instead of being generous with it, he says, what shall I do? I'll tear down my small barns, I'll big bigger barns, I'll heap this up and hoard it. I'll put my feet up because I've got enough for years to come. I will eat, drink and be merry. Why? Because that man a fool, as he says, this night your soul will be required of you. Thomas Constable, pastor, summarizes the deceitfulness of riches this way. He says, quote, riches are a handicap spiritually because they represent two temptations to the wealthy. First, rich people sometimes conclude that because they are rich, they are superior to the poor, perhaps more blessed of God and therefore do not need God's grace. But the second temptation for the wealthy is this, they may conclude that because they are rich, they are secure. 
and therefore they fail to plan for the future beyond the grave, end quote. Well, the, the first danger that he mentions there was almost universally believed in Jesus' day, that if a person was wealthy, God was particularly blessing that person. They believed that wealth was a sign of God's approval. And, and that is why the disciples were so perplexed when Jesus pitied this young man and said how hard it is for the rich to get to heaven. And what did they say as a result of that? They said, well, who then can be saved? In other words, they had it in their mind that this young man was the poster child for those who go to heaven. He knew the law, he had kept it well. God had obviously seen that and blessed him with financial blessings out of approval. And so they're confused. If this young man won't make it to heaven, who will? But friends, what they were missing from the words of Jesus is not just that it's difficult for a person with riches to get into heaven, he is saying that it is impossible. It's impossible for a person to love money and love God. And that's our second point, the impossibility of salvation and riches, verse 25. For it is easier, Jesus says, for a camel to go through the eye of the needle than for a rich man to enter the kingdom of God. Now, a lot of theologians who want to reduce and dilute the strength of what Jesus says here have done all sorts of verbal gymnastics with this verse. You've probably heard the theory that uh, he wasn't talking about a literal needle, like a sewing needle. He was talking about a small passageway there in Jerusalem where camels had to get down on their knees to crawl or they couldn't get under this particular passage. Uh, there's a great Greek word for that theory. It's called bologna. That's not what it means. In fact, this phrase was used a lot by rabbis long before Jesus. Oftentimes, they used the word elephant in place of a camel to give it even more strength. They would say, it, it's easier for something to happen than an elephant to go through the eye of the needle. The point is that it's impossible. It's analogous to what we say in our English language, when pigs fly. That is, it will not happen. It's an impossibility. And the rich young ruler understood that. He knew that Jesus wasn't saying it's hard, it's difficult, it's impossible. That's why he turned away. He, know, he knew that Jesus meant you can't have two gods. You'll love one and hate the other, vice versa. It's either devotion to possessions or devotion to Jesus. And this man chose poorly. How so? Let's not quibble here. Let's all admit that there are advantages in this life to having money. You have better access to health care, better access to nutritious food, better access to education, the comforts of life, and certainly most people with a lot of money enjoy a certain level of prestige in the community. But the problem with, the, with wealth, temporal wealth, is just that. It's temporary. It, it has a nature that it doesn't last. And remember, we said there are two parts of us. There's the temporary, the physical, and there's the eternal, the soul. The, pr the problem about all things wealth-related is that they're going away. Mark Bearden gave the illustration at the marriage retreat this weekend. He, he, he was blessed by some furniture that someone gave him. And he called his family and he says, guys, you see all this furniture? Yes, it's nice, isn't it? We, we appreciate it. We love it. But all this furniture... 
has something in common. One day it will end up in the landfill. And you can put that in place of furniture, anything this world has to offer. One day it's going to end up in the landfill. And beyond that, the scripture says one day it's going to be burned up with fervent heat. It's temporary. So don't trust it. In fact, even while you own it, it can be stolen from you through theft. If the economy shifts a few degrees in either direction, it could depreciate in value. And with runaway inflation, the value of it could diminish overnight. That's why the scripture says, what will a man give in exchange for his soul? That is the only true thing that has eternal value. Well, you know these things are true. I won't press that point any farther. Let's move on now to the disciples' response to what Jesus had to say. Verse 26, they who heard it said, then who can be saved? But he said, the things that are impossible with people are possible with God. The things that are impossible with people are possible with God. Verse 28, Peter said, behold, we have left our homes and followed you. All things are possible with God. You hear people quote that verse all the time, but it's rarely quoted in this context. He is not saying, friends, that God can figure out a way, because it seems like he's letting us off the hook, right? That, oh, you, you've heard it said you can't love God in money. Well, it, it's possible. God could do that. He's that big. He's not saying that God can figure out a way that you can serve money and still go to heaven. Rather, he is saying that God is so powerful, he can draw a money-worshiping sinner to himself to see the unsurpassed value of eternity with him. We only have to wait a couple more chapters till we see him doing that with a man named Zacchaeus, who was also a rich man with authority. And when he was miraculously saved, he parted with his money without Jesus having to say it. So that leads us to our third point, the, the result of submission of riches. They got it. You can't serve God in money. And Peter being the spokesman of, of the 12, says a couple of things here, I take it. Um, he articulates two questions all of them were wondering about. Number one is, who can be saved? That's a good question. And though Jesus doesn't articulate it exactly this way at this point, in the whole of Scripture we put it together, it's what we say every Sunday here, only those who come to Jesus on his terms can be saved. Only those who come as a little child with a humble spirit Empty pockets, outstretched hands, Lord have mercy. But Peter asked the second question here, and it's just like Peter asked this question. He says, what's in it for us? He says, Lord, we've left our homes. We did what you told this young man to do. And, and he was right partially. Jesus was walking around the Sea of Galilee. He saw Peter and Andrew mending their nets. He said, come and follow me and I'll make you fishers of men. And immediately they got up and followed. Went a little farther and here's James and John, the son of Zebedee, doing the same thing. They were fishermen too. They got up immediately, followed Jesus. So uh, they did leave their business. I think Peter's exaggerating a little bit because apparently he didn't sell his fishing stuff because we find him years later when he was disappointed with Jesus, said, I go a fishing. And he went back and got on his boat he still had them in a self-storage place somewhere, just in case. 
But we'll, we'll give him some space on that and just let's agree with him. Yes, they did leave a lot to follow Jesus. Jesus doesn't rebuke him and say, well, not really, Peter. He just went along with it. And he said in verse 29, he said to them, truly I say to you, there is no one who has left house or wife or brothers, parents, children for the sake of the kingdom of God who will not receive many times as much at this time, that is in this life and in the age to come eternal life. Now how so? How is it possible? Is Jesus promising health and wealth? Are the prosperity preachers right? Have we all missed it? Heaven forbid. He's talking about the doctrine of adoption. That when we're saved, some things happen. One is at the moment of regeneration, our spiritual eyes are open. We see and we call out to God in faith and repentance. We're born again, in other words, but also our citizenship, the scripture says, is transferred from the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of God's dear son. And we become part of God's forever family. God is our gracious and benevolent father. When Jesus taught the disciples to pray, said pray like this, our father who art in heaven. We now become a part of a family whose father is wealthy beyond words, who owns the cattle on a thousand hills and will not withhold one good thing that you need from you, his child. Further, the scripture says that you become a joint heir with Jesus. All of the blessings of heaven that have accrued to Jesus' account, we participate in. But beyond that, remember, he says, not just in eternity, but in this life. You'll have many more times, brothers, parents, and children. How in the world? Well, it's because of uh, what Hebrews 13.1 says. Let brotherly love continue. That is, when you are saved, you become part of the church, capital C, writ large. I just see some men that just came in from Guatemala last night. Do you guys have any family members in Guatemala? Brothers and sisters in Christ. And I, I'm sure if it's like the times I've been down there, they gave you the best of everything they had. They put you in the most comfortable bed and they fed you the best food they could afford. That's what he means. And you do the same for them when they come here. That you have brothers and sisters now in every city and nation on planet earth. That's what he means. He's not promising an easy life. But, but don't lose sight of the most important thing here. The last two words at this time in the age to come, comma, eternal life. That's what the young man wanted, wanted, but that's what he missed. We started this sermon talking about inheritance. I said it's not something you can earn or it's no longer an inheritance. Well, the rich young ruler wanted to know what he could do to inherit eternal life. It's not that he could do anything. He couldn't. But what Christ did to make this heavenly inheritance yours. And make no mistake, it is a wonderful inheritance, far better than anything this world has to offer. The apostle Peter, who was there to hear Jesus talk about true riches that day, later in his life, took pen and ink and paper and wrote these words. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who according to his great mercy has called us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, to obtain an inheritance 
which is imperishable and undefiled and will not fade away, reserved in heaven for you. Remember I said that a heavenly inheritance is altogether superior than anything you could inherit here. Because anything you inherit here is going to end up in the landfill. It's going to end up burned up with fire. And it can be subject to theft, inflation, and depreciation. Well, he covers all those bases here. When he speaks of our heavenly inheritance, he says it's imperishable. It won't depreciate. It's undefiled. It will not fade away. And it's better than the FDIC. It's protected in heaven, reserved for you. Protected by the power of God through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. You can buy the highest rated safe in the world, guaranteed to sustain flood, fire, and tornado. And it's nothing compared to the power of God. What he's saying is if anyone or anything takes away your heavenly inheritance, he's got to go through God to do it. And what is more powerful and who is more powerful than God? No one and no thing. That's as secure as it can possibly be. He goes on to say, in this you greatly rejoice, even though now for a little while, if necessary, you've been distressed by various trials so that the proof of your faith being more precious than gold, which is perishable, even though tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. And though you've not seen him, you love him. Though you do not see him now, you believe in him. You greatly rejoice with joy inexpressible and full of glory, obtaining as the outcome of your faith, what? The salvation of your soul. He says, if you'll give up all that, if you'll submit to me, I'll give back to you in this life more siblings than you can number, more blessings than you can count, but most importantly, when it all is over here, salvation for your souls. And in conclusion, this hits home for us. We're rich. We are affluent. Now you may say, well, pastor, you don't know me. I'm not rich or affluent. Yes, you are. Compared to every other nation on earth, there's not a person in this world who's not affluent and, and wealthy. And the Apostle Paul has something to say about that. Again, to Timothy, let's just turn there, if you will. 1 Timothy chapter 6. We'll conclude with this. 1 Timothy chapter 6. Paul has been giving instructions to the young pastor, Timothy, who's gone to the city of Ephesus to pastor a church. The city of Ephesus was known for its affluence. It was wealthy. It was a crossroads city. And quite certainly there were people in the church who had grown quite wealthy. And so what does the Bible have to say about those of us who live in affluent areas? 1 Timothy 6, 17, Paul says to Timothy, instruct those who are rich in this present world. Now, when he starts a statement like that, in this present world, what does that infer? That there's a future world to come. He says, instruct those who are rich in this present world not to be conceited. Now, what did the pastor warn us in the quote I read earlier about the danger of riches? It causes us to be conceited to think that we're God's little favorite, that poor people are somehow morally inferior to us or they wouldn't be poor. He says, don't believe that way. Don't become conceited or to fix their hope on the uncertainty of riches. The other danger was 
you have a false sense of security that because you have so much, you have no needs and therefore you don't come to Christ on his term. He says, don't do either of those things. But he says, instead, fix your certainty on God who richly supplies us with all things to enjoy. He's not saying not to enjoy God's blessings. He's saying don't trust in those provisions. Trust in the God who provides, not the provision. Remember, friends, God is a jealous God. He he won't take second place to anything. He won't take second place to your house, your boat, or your retirement account. But he gives you those things as his children to enjoy. But as you're enjoying them, he says this in verse 18, instruct them, that is the rich, to do good, to be rich in good works, to be generous and ready to share. When God gives you an abundance, it's not for you to hoard it, not for it to become your obsession. He gives it to you so that you can, through it, bless other people. Here's a good way to remember it. God blesses individual Christians and individual churches not to become a reservoir for his blessings, but to be a conduit for his blessings. You can see the difference? We're not to heap it up to see how much we can get. We are to distribute it to those that the Lord puts on our heart that need the help most. Be ready to share. That is to set your default setting to yes. And he says when you view your wealth that way, you're actually storing up something, but it's not money. He says you're storing up for yourselves the treasure of a good foundation for the future. That is that life to come so that they may take hold of that which is life indeed. This life is not real life. You understand that, right? It's it's microscopically minute, this little time that we have here, compared to eternity that is to come. And yet in some incredible way, what we do here impacts how our eternity will go. And that's why the scripture says, don't lay up treasure here on earth where the thieves break in and steal and moths can destroy and rust corrupts, but instead lay up treasure in heaven, that heavenly treasure which is guarded by the power of God, which does not depreciate. It is undefiled, imperishable, and will never fade away. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, Lord, we thank you for your word. It's personal. In fact, probably a little bit uncomfortable to tell you the truth. We've been taught not to talk about money in public, and yet Jesus talked about money probably more than any other subject because he knew the incredible potential it had to distract us, to keep us preoccupied with acquiring it and managing it and keeping it. Beyond that, he understood it was dangerous. Many people have shipwrecked their souls in an attempt to get rich. Father, it's also deceitful. Tells us lies and makes promises it cannot keep. Tells us that if we have enough, we'll live forever. If we have enough, we'll be happy. If we have enough, we'll be secure and won't need anything else. All of those are demonstrably untrue. That's why Jesus told the rich young ruler that he had to divest himself of that which he loved more than Jesus. Father, that's true of him, it's true of us. Truth is, all of us live in an affluent area and most, if not all of us, would fall into the category of wealthy on a worldwide scale. So Father, we live in a dangerous place spiritually. 
So Father, help us to, to view money not as a means to an end, but, but as a tool in your hands that can be used to glorify Jesus. Father, help us to hold it loosely, not tightly. Help us to be willing to part with it. If we lost it all today, Lord, I pray that our souls would stand fast, lashed to the bedrock of the Lord Jesus Christ. And I pray that be true of everyone in the sound of my voice. I pray it in Jesus' name and for his sake. Amen. Thank you again for listening to our broadcast. To learn more about First Baptist Church in Keller, Texas, or to hear more sermons by Pastor Keith and our staff, visit us online at fbckeller.org.